This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Today's episode is another installment of Make Remake. It's where we take a movie and its remake and compare the two. Not to see which one is necessarily better or worse, but to see how two movies can tell the same story both similarly and differently. In the past, we have paired such films as The Invisible Man, Wicker Park, Old Boy, 1984, and others. On today's show, we are considering the 1940 Alfred Hitchcock film Rebecca and this year's remake directed by Ben Wheatley. The film is based on a novel by Daphne du Maurier from 1938 that tells the story of a young woman who, while working as a lady's companion in Monte Carlo, meets a dashing young widower named Maxim de Winter. The two have a brief but intense courtship and decide to get married. When the new Mrs. de Winter returns to a seaside estate that is world-renowned for its grandeur and beauty named Manderley Bay, tensions arise as Max is cagey about his first wife's death and the head servant, Mrs. Danver, seems creepily still attached to the late Rebecca de Winter. The film and story is best described as a gothic romance with noir undertones. Alfred Hitchcock's version won the director his only best picture at the Oscars. The film won one other award for cinematography and was nominated for an additional nine awards. It starred Laurence Olivier, Joan Fontaine, Judith Anderson, and George Sanders. Ben Wheatley's version just dropped on Netflix and stars Army Hammer, Lily James, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Sam Riley. As a heads up, today's episode won't directly spoil the films, but major plot points will still be discussed, so if you haven't seen at least one of the movies, you may want to do so first. To discuss these two films, I am joined by Rachel Ho, an online film reviewer whose work can be seen at rachelkh.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. Rachel, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am excellent. Uh, it's always a special occasion when I just get to discuss Alfred Hitchcock, and I'm excited that you haven't seen either of these movies, which is sort of a criteria yep. I used to put upon myself of like, if you haven't seen either, that's when I can do it. But now <laughs> I'm getting to the point where I'm like, oh, Rebecca remake. I've seen the original like five times. I should find someone that hasn't <laughs> seen it at all. And that's you. Yeah, I, I, it's. It's been on the to watch list for ages. I mean, as I think tons of movies are, there's a million out there. Um, and I've always wanted to watch it. And it was a perfect excuse to make sure I actually sit down and get to watch it. Watch the Netflix one first, because um, I thought it'd be interesting to go in fresh and not know it. And I knew nothing. I hadn't read the book either. So I'm not sure. Have you read the book, actually? Or I have not. And so you haven't. You know, okay. we can prob- we'll probably dance around that a little bit and be like, well, what we've seen online, the book says this, but yeah, Mm -hmm. for anyone listening, we haven't seen the book. We're strictly comparing the movies as standalone products. So yeah, I was definitely going to ask you about why you decided to watch the, the new one first. Was there a particular reason behind that? I find that sometimes we can have a bit of a, a bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious. You know, we, I think we always think that the original has to be better. Uh, especially when you're talking about a director like Alfred Hitchcock. Like, why why do a remake of a Hitchcock movie? Um, and I didn't want to be, I suppose, tainted by that. I didn't want to have a, a strong bias uh, towards Hitchcock, even though I kind of, I, I'll admit, I did kind of think his was probably, if I had to guess, I would have thought his was probably going to be better. Um, but I like to just go in and just watch it as a, as a brand new movie. I didn't know what the story was. Um, I knew kind of the relative points it was set in Europe and there was something to do with a widow and uh, you know, a dead wife, that kind of thing. Uh, otherwise though, I just wanted to go in, just enjoy the movie um, without having any preconceived notions about it. Interesting. Have you seen any other Hitchcock films? What's your relationship to his work? So at the beginning of quarantine, um, 
there was time. There was a lot of time on my hands, as I'm sure there was with a lot of people. And I kind of just had a bit of a film festival for myself. I tracked down as many of his movies as I could. Uh, I'd seen, I think I saw Psycho like years ago. Um, I think I saw Rear Window as well. But uh, this time I was, you know, being a little bit older and being, my interest in film is much different than it was, say, 10 years ago. Um, So I just went through as many Hitchcock movies as I could possibly find. And so I ended up watching quite a few. He's a really interesting director. I mean, I know that as a person, as an individual, he's a bit controversial, not a bit, he's pretty controversial today. Um, But just in terms of his film work, I don't know many directors that can compare to what he's done in terms of filming the, sorry, changing the film industry um, for the better, I think. And I mean, his, his, they're timeless. His, his movies are absolutely timeless. And Rebecca was, for me, it was, there's a reason it's the only, uh, it's the only one that he won the best picture for, which is kind of strange because he has a lot of great movies, but um, I think Rebecca was, it was phenomenal. Like I was pretty blown away by it. Interesting. Do you have a favorite of all of his movies then? Um, I, I really did like Rear Window. Um, I thought that that was just, I, I liked it because it was very, um, I guess kind of similar to Rebecca, like there's not a million different sets, you know, it's kind of takes place in this guy's room. And uh, I personally, I, I really like Grace Kelly as well. Uh, so yeah, I, I really enjoy that movie. I think that that was just such an, a well told story. And sometimes I find, you know, suspense from those, the kind of the golden era of Hollywood. I find that those might not translate as well in modern day, just in terms of special effects and those kinds of things. But I really like Rear Window. I like Birds as well. Birds was actually a terrifying movie to me. I, I was very scared by that one. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's another story that is based on a Daphne du Maurier novel. So that's uh, that's a bit of a good. I segue. didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she okay. uh, she's written a few. I was trying to figure out exactly what were what of her works had been adapted for film. And I ended up forgetting to do that. I was going to include that in the introduction, <laughs> but, uh, but I do know for sure that the birds is, is based on a novel of hers. Oh, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I might have to track that one down then. Yeah. So I think, I think that's a great place to sort of start. Uh, I, I, I think you have a, a good, a great base knowledge there of sort of what the era sort of was entailing as far as thriller-ish movies. And while Rebecca, you know, I talked about in the intro, it's kind of described as a gothic romance. And I heard Mm -hmm. that term first from, I went to a screening of Rebecca at Tiff Bell Lightbox back when we were allowed to do such things that uh, (laughs) Guillermo del Toro was hosting. He was doing a gothic romance week. So every night he was doing, showing a movie and then he would do a talk afterwards. That's amazing. Yeah, he was was in town working post-production on um, Crimson Peak, which is clearly okay. very inspired by that, although with much more overt horror elements on top of that, because there were literal mm-hmm. ghosts in that movie, where right. he was going for the vibe that Rebecca and films like that were doing. And I wish I could remember the other movies that were included in his uh, in his week-long exhibition, but uh, myself and the original co-host of the show went and saw it, and we actually did a podcast episode way back on episode eight. Um, wow, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so it's the, the idea of gothic romance sounds so appealing. It's, you know, I've got these dark, moody overtones. Well, it's not horror. There is clearly an element of a relationship that is at play that is the center of it that isn't about, you know, people dying or finding a murder or things like that. And, and I would sort of definitely relate it to some of the original uh, gothic horror 
works, whether it's stuff like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or things like that, where the idea of what we think of Frankenstein isn't really what the actual book was about. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so that's where I think this, that sort of term, you know, Gothic romance comes from. And I think Hitchcock did a whole lot more with noir elements. Um, one of the things that del Toro was talking about was he was using a lot of German expressionism to inform his filmmaking with the, the idea of what, uh, noir lighting does. So, you know, just highlighting the eyes and using a lot of shadows and things like that where, where Hitchcock was taking, uh, inspiration from. And I, I think it's interesting too, that it doesn't feel like as many kind of in that Gothic noir genre, if you will, it doesn't feel like as many today get made. And I, I don't know what that is. Like, I, I don't know if it's, do they not see that there's a market for it and studios aren't going for that as much? Is it considered too art house or something? You know what I mean? Like I I've noticed that there's, it, there was a time that they were really, really popular. Um, and just now it, they don't, you don't see as many as you used to. It seems like it's a, a decidedly adult genre and not mm. kind of like a, Ooh, it's got risque stuff in it. More of a sense of, it's more about the story and a drama element. It doesn't have a lot of scares, which might attract the horror crowd. It's not a pure thriller. It's not like a action adventure sort of thing. So I think, you know, the same way I was sort of categorized like uh, mid-sized films that are just regular dramas. There isn't a whole lot of market for that. It has to have some sort of hook to it. It has to have some sort of extra element that people latch on to, whether it's a, a genre or style. And dramas as a whole just sort of seem to fall the wayside for sure i and i think i mean now there's so many more ways to watch film like to absorb whatever if you don't call it content or film you know there's so many streaming services out there and as i also i think movie theater tickets are getting so expensive as the years go by that you kind of if you want to have those big theatrical movies the studios need a reason to make it. And I guess the drama, like you said, those, those types of movies, you know, they just don't get the funding because they just assume, well, we're not going to get it back. Whereas this big kind of set piece thriller, superhero movie, whatever, those will actually pack in the seats. And and I mean, we've seen it not this year, obviously, but um, you know, last year, I think it was over a billion or what, $2 billion. I think those Avenger movies and all the Marvel movies, the Disney I mean, Disney cleaned up last year. So uh, it, it, it is interesting to see that shift. And it's like we've seen it progressively coming from, I, I would say, what, from maybe 10, 20 years ago up until today. And it's just been like a steady, steady decline, which is unfortunate because I, I love watching those movies and I love going to the movie theater to watch them. But it's just becoming less and less now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I watched you go down just as I watched her a year ago, even in the same dress you couldn't compare. You knew it. You knew that she wore it, and yet you deliberately suggested I wear it. Why do you hate me? What have I done to you that you should ever hate me so? You tried to take her place. You let him marry you. I've seen his face, his eyes. Well, the same as those first weeks after she died. I used to listen to him, walking up and down, up and down, all night long, night after night, thinking of her, suffering torture because he'd lost her. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. You thought you could be Mrs. DeWinder. Live in her house, walk in her steps, take the things that were hers, but she's too strong for you. You can't fight her. No one ever got the better of her, never, never. She was beaten in the end, but it wasn't a man, it wasn't a woman. It was the sea. Oh, stop it, stop it, oh, stop it. 
So I guess we'll start. Uh, the key thing that we want to talk about is similarities of how you can tell a story and then differences. You've got these two different movies. And so we're going to start with the similarities, things that we notice. Obviously, the general overview of the plot is the same. It's the story about mm-hmm. a young couple that, that meets and falls in love. And then there's the history with the man's uh, dead first wife that comes into play. That's the story. That's the same. And I don't think we can really compare that any more than that because that's the whole plot of the movie. But yep. I think you came up with some really interesting, interesting ones that, uh, that I'd love to talk about. What would you say is the biggest similarity that sort of grounded the film? I'd actually start with the music. Um, I actually thought that the, it was interesting to me cause it not, it's not too often. I find that I'm watching a film and I, I get kind of not, I don't want to say distracted by the score, but something that. I look at it or I'm watching the movie and I just think there's a lot of score. Like it's, it's, there's a lot of music here trying to pull me in a way. And I, I know that, and like, that's, you know, obviously in Hitchcock's movie, he was very big on using kind of horror themed film, you know, a lot of string instruments to build up tension. And I noticed that, you know, in Wheatley's version, he did the same thing and it was very, very heavily used. And I'd say a, a key difference in that similarity though, is that Wheatley chose uh, he chose a, a lyrical song to go along with it, which, again, not very common, I don't think, apart from, I mean, say, maybe like a romantic comedy, uh, though they use kind of more pop music, I suppose. Uh, but I, I was, for some reason, that point really stuck with me when I finished watching the movie. I mean, that's obviously aside from the plot lines and kind of characterizations um, of, of the the individual characters, um, the music was something that really stood out for me. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I agree. That was something, you know, as much as I love the first Rebecca, it is something I, I sort of find is a bit of a weakness is it's overuse of score during certain scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're emailing back and forth, I, I mentioned that I had a story and the story was mm-hmm. that I saw the Guillermo del Toro talk and stuff like that. But the, one of the key things that I had learned from that is he called the score in the film uh, Mickey Mousing, which is this idea that every step that the character takes, every emotion that they show, there is going to be a musical cue to it. So when the characters are happy, it's a happy sound. When the characters are right. scared or nervous, it's more of an intense sound. And that was something that is very overt through the whole Rebecca. And, and I, especially as you rewatch it several times, you're like, oh man, just to sort of let the tension play out. You don't really need anything or, or something very subtle. And this was a very over-the-top. A lot of Hitchcock's films were over-the-top with their scores, and in times that worked. In Psycho, you want that very heavy, intense, you know, violin shrieking sound because it works mm-hmm. so well to, to amp the terror in you. But for a much more subtle, gentle film like Rebecca is, sometimes less is a bit more. And I definitely noticed that, too, in the new version where there was a lot going on. They used... I don't know if it was the same song, but they definitely used a couple songs throughout the film where it was it sort of stuck out a little bit of just being a little bit too much of trying to where, you know, older films would uh, tell you how to feel. I was feeling similarly with the way the lyrics were telling you how to feel. Yeah, it's a lot of spoon feeding. You know, it's a lot of spoon feeding the audience to say, like you said, now you're sad. Now you're now you're tense, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think. You know, to to your point about the use of the score in Psycho, I think the reason, like, apart from what you said of it being, Rebecca's a much more gentle film. It's not as uh, overt. But I found that, like, when they were using that, the strings in Psycho, that that kind of very classic sound, 
for me, the reason that particular thing worked was because it's, it's, it sounds like a woman screaming, which mm. is kind of, that's, and, and I like that. I like that kind of mirroring from it. Whereas in Rebecca, it just like, it, exactly what you said, it just felt like a lot of spoon feeding to the audience in both versions. Um, you know, one using lyrics and the other one using kind of high volume, uh, you know, crescendoing music that, that, that's, that's supposed to make us feel in a certain way, which I mean, that's, it's, it can be an influential way of using it. A lot of, I mean, a lot of directors will, every director will use, um, will use the music to, to play it up. But it is, and it is interesting when you see, I'm not sure if you've seen, there's a new film, uh, was it 7500 uh, on Amazon Prime from, it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt. No, I um, That film, they don't use any score, uh, which I thought was really, really interesting. And and it's it is a high octane thriller. It's it's set in a like a cockpit of a, of a plane, and it's building up like a terrorist kind of attack is happening behind the door. Mm. But they don't ever use um, score. They it's just the hum of the the kind of the cockpit noises in the airplane. That's all that they have. They don't they don't use any actual instrumentals behind it. And that, and like that, I think for me that's just an interesting thing that um, for as brilliant as Hitchcock was was it a bit of a crutch? Like, can we say it was a bit of a crutch for him to be using such a heavy, heavy reliance on score? I think so. I, I almost wonder because his, he worked with such iconic composers, you know, uh, Bernard Herman for psycho. And, and I think he worked on a couple other ones. I almost wonder mm-hmm. if music was maybe a bit of a blind spot for him where he wasn't as confident oh. or, or sure of it and relied a little bit too heavily on the composers to tell too much of a story or maybe it's just sort of a, a product of the time you know i watch i True. love watching movies from the 30s to the 60s when when hitchcock was active and a lot of the time the score is just way too uh over present basically and and that just might have been the studios insisting upon it i know i know an issue was when films went from silent to talkies they weren't studios weren't sure how the audience would be able to understand the characters or relate to it because they're so used to hearing music nonstop throughout the entire movie that they basically continue that tradition, just adding dialogue as well. So I wonder if it was just a tradition that just took far too long to die out. Uh, I don't know if it was studios or if it was Hitchcock or if it was the composer's fault or whoever it was, for some reason there, there's a bit of a disconnect. Now this was a movie that was also produced by David Oselznik, who is very mm-hmm. famous for being dictatorial in the way he controls <laughs> his film sets. You know, there's horror stories as bad as the ones of Hitchcock treating his female actresses, uh, yeah. how he would treat his uh, behind the behind the camera talent, uh, especially his directors. And I know Hitchcock fought very intensely with him. And it's interesting that this being the only movie that won him Best Picture was the one that he paired up with David Oselznik. For. Mm-hmm. So there's so many different variables that I'd love to maybe know a bit more about it, but I feel like it's probably one of those things that it's the history is lost to the water. It's been pulled away into the that's sea. That's true. I, I that's really fascinating actually, those two points that you brought up. I never thought about yeah, maybe maybe this isn't as as again, as brilliant as Hitchcock was. Um he wasn't perfect and there wasn't he he didn't have his brilliance applied to every single aspect of filmmaking. So he probably would have relied on other people for it. And yeah, that the historical point of it going from, from silent to talkies. Uh, yeah, that that's actually really fascinating. I would, 
I'm going to read up more on that. That that's really really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think another interesting similarity is the way both of these films start out. They start out with a, a narration <laughs> where it is Mrs. De Winter, who, if you don't know by now, she doesn't have a first name. We don't know what her uh, her maiden name is. We only know her as the new Mrs. De Winter. So she's having this narrating this dream sequence of talking about how she went back to Mandalay Bay and what the feeling was like and how nature has was overcoming the property and, and trees and grass and vines and all that sort of stuff. And we get this, both films, this really dreamy tracking shot going into the property, into the front gates, and then you see what is left of this old estate. We don't really know what exactly is happening because there's a lot of shadows going on, especially in the original one, in the new one, they kind of play with that a little bit by basically bathing the screen in uh, reds to sort of uh, foreshadow the fire that is coming. And then it goes into a blue, which sort of foreshadows the water element and stuff like that. But both of them have a very dreamy-like feel to it. Uh, I I like the, the introduction. It's one of those introductions where you kind of forget it by the end of the movie. And so it's not until you rewatch it that you sort of realize, oh yeah, they're, they're telling you basically what happens at the end of the movie at the very beginning, where you, you, you sometimes see that in movies. And for some reason with me, it just never, that information never retains. Uh, but what did you think about uh, utilizing the same introduction? I liked it. I, I, I'm of two minds about using narration in films because I think when it's done well, it can really add something to the film because I think it can be kind of, you know, it's storytelling, right? It's somebody reading a story to you, which is effectively what filmmaking is. Um, but I loved in this one, or sorry, what I was going to say was sometimes I think that it can be used as a bit of uh, a bit of a crutch in terms of exposition. It's the way of planting all of this information in a film before we've actually even sat down to watch it. And it's just an easy it's an easy way kind of almost for a director to get into a story. But the reason I think it works here is because it does open up, like you said, it's, it's very dreamy. It has that fairy tale aspect to it. And because it's a tracking shot leading us down this path um, and then eventually ending to Mandalay, the, the, the big mansion, or it's not even a mansion, it's a castle really. Um, I, I found it really effective. I really liked it. And I personally, I mean, one uh, this is a similarity, but one of the differences there was uh, in Wheatley's version, we see that she kind of, there's a bookend to the narration, you know, of Mrs. De Winter, she kind of closes out the the narration, which jolted me back in because you're I, I, I'm with you. I tend to forget it sometimes. I tend to forget that they even had these elements of foreshadowing unless I go back and, and give it a second watch. Um, but because they did bookend it with basically the end of the fairy tale and saying the end um it kind of brought it full circle which surprised me that i liked it because i don't like i said i don't typically like it when movies do that uh but i actually thought it was really well done in this one in both in like in, in both the newer version and the older version i think the key is you know you're talking about this the overuse of narration in some films i think the key for that is when it's narration throughout the entire film where yeah, it's just true. sort of a crop instead of instead of showing us what's going on, you're just mm-hmm. telling us what's happening or or whatever it is. Whereas this, it's just at the very beginning, 
and we get a bit of an introduction to who Mrs. De Winter eventually becomes uh, before we see who she is at the beginning, because there, she she definitely does go through a big journey and growth and change, mm-hmm. and I think they do. I think it does do a very interesting job of setting that up of how she changes in a very stark way, but you don't realize until after watching it, of course. For sure. And I, I think also it's not even like setting up a story in a sense. It's kind of her just, just talking like, you know, it's like reading out of her diary and you, as an audience member, you're not quite sure where any of this fits in until the end. And then again, if you go to rewatch it, it makes a lot more sense. But um, I find that it, it was, it was very effective. It was a very effective use of, kind of an opening narration and the shot itself is beautiful. Like it's, it's really nice, especially in Hitchcock's version with all the different shadows and it's very windy as well. Like it's not just going up um, like a singular dirt road. That's just straight. Like there's actually quite a few twists and turns that's going in. And so you're kind of thinking, well, where are they leading you to? And then eventually it's this, this massive kind of set piece that that's, you're like, okay, so something is happening here, but we don't quite know what yet. Mm -hmm. I think what's what works best for Hitchcock's is the fact that that was a miniature set. So it does have mm. an extra dreamlike quality where they, they put a ton of detail into making this building and making all the, the trees and overgrown nature of it. But at the same time, it's not what an actual building looks like. It's what you remember a building looks like. The edges are a little oh. soft and, and things are, are just off just enough that make you kind of wonder what's going on. And I think that does a great job of, of reinforcing that this is a dream. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's there's a couple other things. I, it's We were talking about it beforehand. This movie has far more differences than it does similarities. Yeah. In, you know, without just it being the general plot outline. It, it was a little hard to find a lot of similarities because I think Wheatley really wanted to make this his own version, uh, for better or for worse, which we'll talk about later. So it's, it's a little tough. I know another thing you had kind of pointed out was a bit of the some of the relationship dynamics. I think probably the the one that was the most interesting for me was between uh, the future Mrs. De Winter and her the woman that she had hired. as her companion her name is beatrice uh who's out in monte carlo she's this older rich lady who has no family i assume uh or at least no family that's alive and has hired a young girl to be her companion kind of like what you would call a a nurse back in the day where they're there to take care of you and bring you to your meals and sort of stuff like that but she's very clearly a paid employee to be there yeah, I I think you mean Edith Van Hooper. Yes, sorry, or Hopper. that's what I meant. Yes. Was it Hopper or Hooper? I think Van Hopper. Yeah, because Beatrice was the um, was the sister. Was the was was Maxim's sister? You are, you are right. Yes, Edith. Yes, Edith. Yeah, um, but no, that I actually really liked. Um, I I liked the original version of Edith Van Hooper. Hopper Hooper. Um, I found Edith in. Wheatley's version that relationship it was just so nasty to me to the point that it was quite a turnoff and I don't even know if we were meant to hate because in a sense she didn't factor into the rest of the movie which I found interesting um it's I I personally I looked at it and I thought well she's very um actually sorry Dakota are you talking about Beatrice or do you want to talk about Edith 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 yes Edith okay um so I, I found Edith in in the Wheatley version, she was just so nasty for almost the sake of being nasty, I guess, being um, a rich woman and kind of telling Mrs. or the future Mrs. DeWinter, like she needs to know her place as this quote unquote companion or helper assistant, whatever you want to call her. 
Um, but there was no payoff on that. I didn't think that there was a reason for her to be as kind of as nasty as she was in a sense. Whereas in the 1940 version with, with Hitchcock, she was still nasty. Like she was still very, um, you know, there's clearly a difference between the two of them that, that, that element stays the same, you know, that there's, but maybe it's, maybe it's the way it was played by the two actresses. I don't know, but I felt like in, while the, the, the general relationship stays the same, that dynamic is the same. I felt like the way that it was played in 1940 was a bit more pleasant. Um, and to me makes more sense because she doesn't factor into the rest of the movie at all. So there was kind of almost no reason to make her such a, uh, such a despicable character in mm-hmm. the 2020 version. And I don't know if that makes sense, but um, that that's for me, that was a quite a, while it's the same, there were these kind of little differences in there that, that really struck me. I would almost say that the interpretation that they went for in the original one, it was more obliviousness with mm. Edith having, you know, obviously being upper crust society, silver spoon in her mouth sort of type, uh, just viewing the world in a certain way and her expectation of everyone in her world to act a certain way, which meant treating... Uh, Mrs. DeWinter in a certain way. It meant treating Maxim in a certain way, that sort of thing. Whereas in the newer one, it almost seemed like you were talking about, we're going to talk about a bit more in the differences, a bit more malice due to the class difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe maybe it is a sense to, it just wouldn't have occurred to her that, mm. you know, why would this person be ever be interested in in my companion? Like it just wasn't even a thought to her. So maybe, maybe that was why as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we talked about uh, Beatrice, or you mentioned Beatrice, yes, and I thought yes, that that relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that that relationship was really interesting too. Like the sister is, you know, when Mrs. De Winter gets into to Mandalay and is introduced, it's the sister is the only kind of constant that remained nice to her. The only one that kind of tried to support her, and you know, when she makes the big, you know, a big any a big error, a big misstep, you know, Beatrice is the one that's there to say it's okay, like we can work it out. We can just do this, do that. And it'll be okay. Like, you know, very reassuring. And it was interesting. They carried that relationship over, which I think is great because I think that you did need somebody who was kind of on her side because it would be a bit, I don't know, maybe it would be kind of bullying in a sense if everybody was ganging up on her um, in, 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 in the story. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because the way we are first introduced to her in the original film, Maxim, basically says, oh, she'll say what's on her mind, and if she doesn't like you, she'll let you know. So we're going into this expecting, great, she's not going to like her brother's new bride uh, because she is a very particular person who probably expects him to marry someone who is of his status as well. And then as soon as Mm -hmm. they meet, you can tell that there's a bit of feeling out going on between both sides of of Beatrice and Mrs. DeWinter. And you're like, okay, where's the tension going to come in? And, and you sort of expect her to maybe be played a little bit and she wasn't. Yeah. And, and especially there's the big sequence with the, the dress reveal where she's the one that's there to, to help her through it and, and comfort her. Yeah. And I, you know, speaking of the 1941, I loved the scene when, you know, Mrs. DeWinter is about to enter the, the room that uh, Beatrice and her husband are in. And the two of them are talking, thinking it's going to be some showgirl or, you know, whatever. And then Mm -hmm. she just kind of walks in and, and she's a very, you know, not plain, but kind of plain, just a very normal girl, you know, nothing, nothing that they expected. And 
yeah, you're, I, I forgot about that point actually that the, that Maxim at the beginning says, you know, well watch out for her, you know, kind of she'll, she's, I think it, it, it I interpret it as that as her as being a protective sister, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that Maxim has all this money, knowing that, um, you know, whoever he ends up marrying again stands to gain a lot. So she's going to be quite ruthless in making sure that you aren't just taking advantage of her brother. Um, I don't know if I, that kind of was in the, in the, in Wheatley's version, but I think that protectiveness and that kindness was still there though. Yes. Yes. I think it's a sort of thing where if you see both, you understand where the character traits were coming from in the newer one, even if they weren't as overtly, uh, mentioned. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, and another relationship I thought was interesting, which, um, it was between Frank and I know that you, in our emails together, you would, you would ask, did you mean Firth, the butler? And I, I did mean Frank, uh, Frank Crawley, the uh, kind of Maxim's kind of buddy. Oh, <laughs> I think yes, it was yes, the estate right. manager, yes, the estate manager. Um, and I thought the reason that one struck out to me was because, so in the end, we find out, you know, Rebecca is who she is. And Frank has um, a particular relationship with Rebecca as well. And I thought that's an interesting dynamic because between Frank and Mrs. DeWinter, they're actually quite chummy with each other. You know, Mrs. DeWinter goes to him for help, asks him for clarification on things, and he's more than willing to help, you know, more than willing to help out. And He seems to be the only person that's honest with her as well, like completely honest. Yeah, very true. Yeah, and and quite kind, you know, very kind-hearted and and not overly suspicious or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought that was interesting that they kept that dynamic because I thought naturally I wondered if, you could play with that and say, well, because of Frank's past relationship with Rebecca, with the new wife, he feels the need to be maybe a bit more distant out of guilt, maybe out of, um, you know, probably out of guilt, really, um, to, to Maxim for everything that had happened. And so I thought, oh, it's like, it, it's interesting that that there is a, a very kind of obvious change that you could have there, but they kept that relationship the same in both. And again, I suppose similar to what, Beatrice meant to um, Mrs. De Winter. Frank also provides that same thing, but from Maxim's side, someone almost a little bit closer to Maxim because you know he, he runs the intimate details of the runnings of the Mandalay estate and all that and, and things like that. So I thought that that was another relationship that just stood out to me as that was a place that they could have changed it, and I think the change would have had quite an impact on the story. Um, but they left it the same. And my only guess could be is they wanted it a bit of balance um, mm-hmm. as they did with Beatrice. Yeah. And, and he's also a bit of an interesting character because he's technically a paid employee of Max, but at the same mm-hmm. time, he's more of a friend. So you, you kind of get it. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, this is this is my buddy who does my taxes for me. Yeah, I mm-hmm. pay them, but like we're friends and they're just kind of helping me out a little bit. He understands the finance section. So that's sort of the same sort of dynamic between Max and Frank is like, yes, I do pay him to run everything and he probably knows more about the house than literally anyone else here. But at the same time, we're more of a friend than an employee-employer relationship. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think I think that uh, I think we covered a lot of the similarities. Uh, I I don't really have anything else to add. Is is there anything else that you want to briefly mention? Um, I remember. I think it was in the emails that we talked about. You were discussing the relationship with the cousin, and um, yeah, and Mrs. De Winter. Yeah, I don't I know guess. if you want to talk about that more and the differences or. 
Maybe, maybe you know, I will. I will briefly mention it. I the one thing that was sort of interesting is uh, Rebecca's cousin, who in the original one is played by George Sanders, who is one of my favorite uh, character actors <laughs> from from back in the day, who's just got the most fantastic voice. Uh, yeah, is played by Sam Riley in the new one. I found it very interesting that they decided to keep the fact that there was a sexual relationship between Rebecca and her first cousin. I yeah. I would have assumed. I think the only thing that I wanted to mention was I assume that they would probably change that relationship ever so slightly like, Oh, this is my family friend or this <laughs> whatever, just because like you hear, I know you'll look back at like, especially uh, royal families and you're looking you're like, wait, you guys are first cousins and you're married. This is a little weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah. cause the whole royal family is completely inbred in every country. But then yeah. you, you sort of, you sort of look at this and you're like, really buddy, you're kind of sleep with your cousin. And like, it just kind of like, <laughs> it's you the icky. Creeps. Yeah. Yeah. And so I understand today. like yeah. the 1940s, it was a product of the time. It was probably in the novel and, uh, we're going to talk about the Hayes Code and the Censor, where clearly mm-hmm. having a relationship with your cousin, A-OK. <laughs> uh, I just sort of assume that they would probably change it. I guess the only reason why they didn't is it adds to his kind of creepy factor. That's the only I suppose, thing I think. <laughs> yeah, that, maybe that's it. But it, I think you had, like, it's a very good point of, of you know, why didn't they change that? Because, and I mean, maybe this segues into to differences, but one big change that they did between Maxim and Mrs. De Winter was rather than play up the age difference, they play up the socioeconomic difference. And the reason for that was I, I read an article and I, it was Army Hammer, I think it was in USA Today. And he said, well, people would be really uncomfortable with a 20 year age gap between two characters now like that. That wouldn't fly today. So it's interesting that they thought, oh, the age gap, that doesn't fly today. But let's keep the cousin thing in because. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Like that, that, that'll still ring true to audiences today. Don't worry. Yeah. But it's, I think it's interesting. Like when you brought that up, I thought, oh, yeah, like why didn't they change that cousin thing? Like it is, it's and you could argue it's a, it's a pretty crucial point maybe in the movie. Like, yeah. I, like you said, the only reason I can think of too is it, it adds to that creep level. Like it's, it's certainly different than just saying, oh, I slept with my family friend. You'd be like, well, okay. Like, you know, you slept with your family friend, but when it's your cousin, your first cousin, that is a lot creepier mm-hmm. um but it, it's just funny to me that they they felt the need to change oh this 20 year age gap but cousins sleeping together no problem like mm-hmm. let, let's keep that in yeah yeah I, I almost wonder if they they kept if they changed the age gap i know people are a lot more cognizant and sensitive over such a you know, a large age gap. Yeah. I've, I've seen countless articles of like, Oh, let's compare James Bond with the age of the Bond girl. Oh, yeah. Look at how yep. the age gap keeps getting bigger and bigger. And I, I think it's something that often gets pointed out rightfully. So, but I think right. where something like this, maybe probably they want to avoid the, the criticism of it, it. It could very well be baked into the story. This idea of this man who was married for a while and then his wife died. Now he's a little bit of an older widower, mm-hmm. not old, but mm-hmm. older. And, meets a young naive girl who doesn't remind him at all like his dead wife, I think that age gap could still work. Whereas the way that they, they set it up in the story, but I'm guessing they probably just want to avoid that completely because, you know, film Twitter and places like that can sometimes yeah. run with a criticism that will derail a conversation about the movie. Even if you watch it and you go, Oh, that makes sense. I understand why they decided to do that thematically. A hundred percent. And I, you know, like you said, the criticism that they have um, that, you know, a lot of people have for the age gap thing, it is very valid, you know, and, but I think it's because 
in something like James Bond, you know, the reason they have the age gap is because they want as young a female, you know, mm-hmm. a certain type of body, a certain type of face, a certain type of look. That's who they want to be the Bond girl, which is why people freak out so much when there is a quote unquote older Bond girl, like Monica Bellucci, right? Mm-hmm. When she was the Bond girl. And you think, well, it's Monica Bellucci. Like, what do you guys, <laughs> she's still <laughs> stunning. Like, I don't really know what we're talking about here. But they go, wow, like she's older. Mm-hmm. And I think she fielded so many questions about that when she was doing the press, which I think was ridiculous. But those don't stand to drive the story in any way. Mm-hmm. You know, for a lot of, it's just the actors that they picked. It has nothing to do with the actual storyline. It was just this older actor is, is very, you know, I mean, this is a whole other kind of tangent, but it's, you know, men in, in Hollywood, as they age, they kind of get better and they get better roles. Whereas for female act, for the female actors, it's, it's really in their twenties that they're getting, getting those types of roles. So it's just a casting decision. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like this is, like you said, it's in, it's part of the story. It's baked into to the plot line. But yeah, I, from what I had read, it just sounds like they wanted to completely bypass that. And maybe because it is such a hot button topic, they thought, let's avoid that. Whereas cousins sleeping together, well, that's not really a hot button topic because we all know that that's not cool. Like that's yeah. not something that you do. So maybe it's, it's, they can leave it alone because they go, audiences know that this is wrong. We're not trying to promote this. This is just flat out wrong. And it's wrong in the, in the movie as well. Like I think that they, they do press, there's a few lines that say like your cousin, like they really push it on that. Whereas they never in the 1940s version, they never talk about the age gap being anything that is taboo, you know, nothing that is wrong about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I feel like we're now getting into the differences. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss how these two films differ from one another. What did you do? I'm a lady's companion. Maxim de Winter. His wife died last year in his entire need of company. I'm Monsieur de Winter. What are you doing? Oh, you'll see. This week... Like to never forget it. Come to Manly. I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. All right, so yeah, I think you know we left off kind of talking about the the relationship dynamic between Max and Mrs. De Winter, and and I don't I think this would actually be the perfect place to kind of continue that discussion. For me, the original Mrs. De Winter character, I feel, is so infantilized. It's this idea yeah. of she's constantly being called young girl and little girl and and talking about how when she grows up more and all this sort of stuff. And then she also does a- actions that sort of reinforce this idea. We get a scene where she knocks over a statue and she panics and so she hides it in a drawer, something that a child would do. And now while they do recreate that scene in the new one, they don't give it the same backstory of of why she would have done that other than her being nervous. And that's sort of the explanation behind it. And, and different things like when uh, Mrs. Danvers and, and Firth are confronting Max about the broken statue, how they think it was one of the employees, she kind of cowers back and, and only admits later on and doesn't want to talk to Mrs. Danvers about it. All this sort of stuff is something that you would expect, expect from a bit of a, a, a 
petulant child who was kind of caught in a lie and doesn't want to admit it. And the further it goes, the worse it gets. Because if you just admit it from the beginning, it's no big deal. It's a statue. He's rich. He can buy 10 new ones if he wants to, even if they're made of pure marble or whatever it is. And so I think that's something that's very interesting, whereas I think they completely change her actions of being someone um, who is not infantilized, but instead uh, has a... I don't even know the best way to describe it, but uh, she has a lot more agency and they they sort of show that. And I almost feel that by removing the sort of naivety aspects, you sort of lose things because you kind of scratch your head. You're like, well, I understand that you want her to have agency, but at the same time, it's removing some of the aspects of who informed her as a character. And now I'm questioning why did she do this and not this when she knew how to be forward and, and forthright and all this sort of stuff. It was something that I think kind of hindered the character as they try to update it to the 21st century. I completely agree with that. I found it's a lot of, flip-flopping um for mrs de winters and in, in 2020 i think on on one hand you're right she's she's very headstrong you know even even before she becomes mrs de winter right when she goes to talk to and she meets um maxim and in the way that they are they you don't you can see her as you know if you want to call it working class i don't know if that's the appropriate term but she's a bit working class and but yet it, because she is aware of it and yet she's very like i'm, I'm street smart though i've read a ton of books about the world. Like I know all of these things. Uh, so even though maybe, yes, I'm at a, a lower social status than you are. Uh, I am still very worldly and intelligent and cultured, but then she goes and does, like you said, things that you go, well, a person who is quote unquote street smart, you wouldn't really do something like that. And I found her to be one of the big differences was She's very overwhelmed in uh, in 2020 versus in 1940. I think she is overwhelmed, but it's more of, you know, I'm I'm a kid. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a kid. So how and and they, and they all and all the characters res, like kind of respond to her in that way. They respond to her as saying, "Well, you're just a child, like you said. You'll learn. You'll learn. You'll get better. Blah blah blah." Whereas in 2020, it's just her uh, them saying, "Well, you should know how to do this. You should know how to do that." And she's, it's like kind of the world just kind of crashing down on her a little bit because she's just incredibly overwhelmed versus just being innocent and wide eyed. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think, I think Joan Fontaine's performance in the original one is such a key to why the movie works so well, because you can, you can see just like the absolute terror in her eyes of she doesn't know what to do in these situations that she's never yeah. been like both of them, they keep the same line about where she's like, Oh, I've never been in a house this big before. Yeah. Mrs. Danvers is like, well, I thought you were a lady's companion yeah. with the, the insinuation that she's clearly should have been around rich people before. But even if you are around rich people before, there's a difference between understanding, Oh, I don't go in this room. I can't go there. I do this. I don't do this. Whereas, you know, Mrs. De Winter is the wife. She is, you know, not the owner of the house, but she is the lady of the house. Her husband owns it. She can do anything she wants in there. It's not like a Beauty and the Beast thing where it's like, do not go into the West Wing. <laughs> that sort of thing. She has free reign of the house. She's allowed to do what she wants. But at the same time, every time she goes in a room, she's like, I don't know if I should be doing this. Am I doing something wrong? She's always sort of second guessing herself. And Joan Fontaine does a, a great job with doing that with later combining it where she finally is sort of forced to grow up when uh when Rebecca's body is refound and the trial is going on and then 
everything that happens after that, you really see such a change in her being grown up from that. And it, there's a few creepy lines, unfortunately, in the original one where uh, Max is like, I never want you to be 36 years old. And that's like, Whoa, yeah. that's, a, that's a weird line there, dude. Um, but that's that's the character that we get. We get this very young, innocent yeah. girl who then turns into a mature woman who is very sure of herself by the end of it. And the gradual progression makes sense. And that character arc is, it's just, it's wonderfully done. Whereas Mm -hmm. in the newer version, I think there's, they still try to go for that character arc. Like I think, um, you know, Army Hammer's, uh, well, I shouldn't call him Army Hammer, Maxim in 2020, he says some, not, he doesn't say the same line of you're never going to be, never be 36, but he says something along the lines of, you know, like they've taken that, you know, your face, like that innocence. And I go, well, what innocence? I remember him saying that line and I was a bit confused by it. I just thought, what's he talking about? She never had innocence um, in the movie, uh, sorry, in the beginning of the film. I didn't feel like she was this innocent person who didn't, you know, who didn't know anything. No, I thought she was someone who knew a lot and just, this is a different world for her because, you know, she, she didn't grow up like that. She, she was orphaned and, and those things. Whereas uh, in 1940, she's just, I, I feel like she's in 1940. It was, it's more relatable. Cause I think, I mean, I've never been, never been married to a millionaire or billionaire or whatever. <laughs> so I, I can, I could understand that idea of kind of being very hesitant when you're walking around a house. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not 20 anymore. So, it, but I still, I get that. And I feel like maybe that was that maybe that's the key as well is that it, you know, that interpretation was much more relatable, I think, to, to an everyday person who was probably watching the movie. Mm-hmm. I think one of the the best things that you you kind of talked about to not just be about plot related was about the editing and cinematography. So I'd love to hear mm. your thoughts about that. So Ben Wheatley, I when I saw he was the director, I thought, I've seen something of his and I really liked it. And I realized it was High Rise and I thought, oh, I, I I really enjoyed High Rise. It was such a, an odd, strange movie, but I like odd, strange movies. And so when I was watching this movie, I, I was thinking, oh, yeah, the, this is definitely the guy that directed High Rise because it has that very, very frenetic way of shooting. It's a lot of cut scenes. There's a lot of flashbacks. Um, there's a lot of kind of narration of present day overlaid on a flashback. And and it's it's such a it's kind of a much more modern way i suppose of filmmaking like it it fits pretty well in in the way that we a lot of movies that we we see today um but typically i find we usually have that frenetic you know editing and and shooting style it's usually for action movies you know like a movie like taken for example like they have a million and one shots for him just to Liam Neeson to just climb over a fence. <laughs> you know, they, they, they build so much tension that. to do that. Yeah. And I mean, maybe because Liam Neeson needed a lot of takes, who knows, <laughs> but he's an older man. So it's okay. But I find it, I just thought it was interesting to put something like that. Cause high, high rise too. I don't, I don't know if I'd consider it action, but it has action elements and it's, it's very much so a thriller. Whereas Rebecca to me is closer to being a drama thriller than anything remotely close to action. So it was interesting to see that take on it that, um, and, and it's, you know, like we said at the top, Ben Wheatley really puts his fingerprints on this. This is definitely his movie. It's not just a remake of Hitchcock's. And I respect him for that because I think so many times when we see remakes, um, 
very specifically these the new Disney live action remakes. It's just shot for shot, the original. And when that happened, you go, well, what was the point of the remake then? What was the point of it? And at least Wheatley, you know, for better or for worse, maybe he didn't quite stick the landing, but at least Wheatley did try to do something new with this material. He didn't just try to do a carbon copy of Hitchcock's because what Hitchcock did was very classically Hitchcock, you know, plays with shadows, a lot of lighting. And that's also black and white element um, of it as well. But it's a very classically done Hitchcock film. And Wheatley definitely puts his, I don't know if you want to call it classically Wheatley, but in line with, you know, the, the other films that he's done as well. Mm-hmm. I've only seen one other Ben Wheatley film too, but that was Free Fire. And and I definitely get sort of similar vibes that you were talking about too. I think mm-hmm. the one that was sort of most uh, agrarious for me was like the the ballroom sequence where there's yes. so much yes. going on and yeah. kind of meant to make it feel like it's a nightmare for her, even though it's happening in real time. And it just, it just really didn't work for me that added intensity that wasn't needed and she's trying to chase someone through the house that i'm guessing she thinks is the ghost of rebecca or something Mm -hmm. like it's a little unclear of what they were trying to go for and it was just so much editing going on that it it just reminded me too much of every other typical over edited film that it lost me very over stylized i think incredibly over stylized and it's funny that ballroom scene too because when i you know i i watched uh, Wheatley's version fresh and so when she comes down for the reveal of her dress I kind of thought like the entire party would stop like that that's what I thought they were going for because she's the lady of the house so everybody that's in the in 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 the party that's all dressed up they would come gather and and see her right and it was going to be a big presentation um but then it just ends up being maxim and his sister and his sister's wife that and frank i think those are the only people that are there and i just remember thinking that's weird i said what what is she doing (laughs) like it was just such an odd thing whereas when i watch hitchcock's version of it you know the guests hadn't arrived yet um and she comes down and it's it's and then they go no you you know all the go change and everything like that but it it doesn't it it I don't know. It felt simpler in in the in Hitchcock's version, whereas Wheatley felt. I feel like he was trying to create. It's like a mountain out of a molehill almost. Like he's trying mm-hmm. to create so much with this one specific scene that didn't need to be like that. And like you said, you know, the whole chasing. I actually thought it was supposed to be like a like a ghost or something. I actually didn't think even think that maybe it was another guest that she was mistaken um, for Rebecca. I actually thought that they were trying to implement like here's Rebecca's ghost. That's yeah. what I thought that they were doing in that. It, it, overall, it was a little unclear for me what exactly yeah, they were trying to clearly. go for. Because like, you can interpret a few different came ways. away with different interpretations of what he was trying to do there. So, And not even not even a good way of having different interpretations. Like It was like, mm-hmm. oh, this symbology could mean this or this. It was like, no, it, no. it was this or it could be this. I, I don't know. It could be any of them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, I guess, again, though, I do respect Wheatley for, for making it his own because I, it's not easy to make a remake and we've seen how many remakes in the last five years, you know, they're always trying to reboot and remake things. And it's, it's never an easy thing to do, especially a movie that's done by arguably one of the greatest directors of all time. So rather than just do what Hitchcock would have done, do your own thing and whether or not you execute it properly or not, I shouldn't say properly, but execute it well or, um, and stick that landing that's up for audiences to decide, but it's, you know, good on him for, 
for at least taking that punt and trying it as best as he could. Now, something else I want to talk about that I, I we didn't email, so I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but mm-hmm. the sort of idea of a, a ghostly presence, I think they do mm-hmm. very differently in these two movies. Whereas in, in the Hitchcock one, I think Rebecca's spirit and presence is felt a lot more. You get these like gentle billowing yeah. curtains that are see-through and you're not really sure what's going on. And then you add in Mrs. Danvers, the head maid of the house who has a floor length dress that when she walks, it looks like she's floating. So you almost think that maybe she's like the reincarnated ghost of Rebecca. There's, there's a lot of interesting interesting aspects of that. And it's sort of played up in that sense. But then in the new one, they very explicitly say, Ooh, Mandalay Bay is haunted. There are ghosts there. But I feel like they removed all sort of pretension of having actual ghostly elements to it, other than saying it a couple times. Uh, Early on, I was going to mention this, I forgot to. When I first heard that this was announced that they were going to make it, I was like, Oh no, I love Rebecca. It has a very special place in my heart for (laughs) one of Hitchcock's favorites of mine. I don't know how they're going to do. And then when I heard it is Ben Wheatley. I'm like, oh, okay. I've only really seen the one movie of his. I don't know how it's going to go. I assume they're either going to go much harder into the horror aspects of it, or they're going to go much harder into the romance aspects of it. And somehow I kind of feel like they do neither. I, at the beginning, it's very much the romance side, but I feel the yeah. romance aspect is kind of dropped a little bit throughout. And they definitely don't play up the sort of ghostly nature of it. Other than, you know, we were just talking about in the ballroom sequence when she's chasing a figure of someone it's clearly not a ghost but it's clearly someone in a red dress that you think is rebecca like you don't really know what's going on with that but it's very different and i think the last sort of key thing is there's this fantastic sequence in the original when they're in the boathouse and max is finally explaining how rebecca died and you get this terrific set of camera movement where it's panning around the cottage and it's stopping at different intervals as max is saying and then she was here and then she was over here and you're just like wow this you you in your head you are seeing someone there and you're seeing where her dead body was and you're like wow i see this and that added sort of the the ghostly element to it as well where you're like i can imagine an invisible person being here and they completely do away with all that sort of stuff in the new one yeah i it kind of links back to what we were talking about with um, the Mrs. De Winter character of being a bit kind of contradictory uh, on herself. And I think that in Wheatley's version, it's almost like he's trying to shoehorn in multiple genres into one movie. And, you know, like you said, it starts as being a kind of a romantic, you know, a little meet cute, like she drops her coin purse and he picks it up and all that kind of stuff. And you go, okay, like it's a little romance and, and certainly a lot more overtly sexual than, um, than in the 94, but that was, you know, there's obvious reasons for that with the Hayes code. Um, but then it moves into an attempt, I guess is the best way to say it at a horror supernatural thing. I actually thought that when they first introduced the wait staff, um, and then there's a few instances with the weights that I thought they were kind of demonic in mm. a way. And I mm. thought, Oh, is, is that how this is going? Like, is it going to be, you know, a house that is literally haunted and, and they're going to be, um, you know, I, I mean, I have no idea, whatever supernatural elements. And 
because I think there was one scene I can't remember um, the exact like where what she was doing here, but Mrs. De Winter comes down the stairs. Oh, it was, it was, sorry, she was going to get breakfast. She was going to get breakfast, and she walks by, and there is a uh, one of the butlers standing right at the door, and she kind of looks at him and looking for some kind of uh, uh, recognition, like just like like acknowledgement, just mm-hmm. like, like good morning kind of thing. And in Wheatley's version, the butler just stares straight ahead. Like there's no reaction. There's no, I, I, I don't acknowledge you. Just go sit down and eat your And I thought, oh, it, maybe they're like kind of, I don't know, some sort of, there's something going on here. Like there's another element, like the, the demonic element. More possession like I said. element. Yeah. It. And yes. that, that's what I thought that they were going for. But then a few scenes later, that same butler is crying because he got accused for stealing the statue. And I go, okay, so it's not a, it's not a demonic element. There is no possession. There is, there's no, this, this isn't existing, but there was like, I could feel that kind of vibe of a bit kind of that creep show, you know, we're all very stilted weight staff people, mm-hmm. but in the end they don't end up being like that. You know, every time that she goes down into the, into the, you know, I don't, what do you call it? The servants quarters, if you will, like in, in Downton Abbey or something, um, when they're down in, in the bottom, when they're eating, they're just normal people. So it is, it is like they wanted it to, to push on that horror element. They wanted to push on that, supernatural element but it's it's in very random spurts and not consistent at all and then i found that final like act of the movie you shift again um to a more of like a detective mystery you know with her going to the doctor's office and and doing all those things that kind of for me was like you've you've kind of made three different movies (laughs) into one and you know, when you said, well, it's it's kind of like they tried to do both, but they didn't do either. I think that they did both, but they did them both so poorly. I hate to be that critical, but to, to say that they did it a bit poorly and then it ends up just being a bit of a mishmash, like just a bit of a soup that you're not too sure what it is. Mm-hmm. It's one of those they want to have their cake and eat it too sort of situation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or you can have a movie like Parasite, which has numerous genres going on at the same mm-hmm. time. And it all kind of ebbs and flows together where you're not sure what sequence, what kind of a movie you're watching. And it works well for that. Whereas this, it was like, yeah, we're going to do this now. And then we're going to forget <laughs> about it later on. And now we're going to do something different now. And then we're going to forget about that later on. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it, you brought up Mrs. Danvers um, and her element of, you know, being almost uh, like she was floating, which I actually didn't think. But now that I think back on it, like that, that's incredibly like apt observation. Um, but she, she's another one that, that, that relationship, that character was quite different um, between the 1940s and the 2020 versions. Uh, you know, in, in 2020, I saw it more as a very maternal, she was very maternal to Rebecca and was possessive over, uh, I guess, Rebecca's memory in the house and, and her standing in Maxim's life, thing that no, no woman will ever, uh, you know, take over my kind of pseudo daughter in a sense. Whereas in the 1940s version, there isn't, there isn't that kind of motherly feel. Also, I think, um, the actress playing her in 1940, she, she's a bit younger. So there, you don't kind of get that um, matronly aspect to it. Um, but in, in 1940, there is a more obsessive. And as I read, and I pointed, I said it to you in my email, I said, the, 
I've heard the the kind of the aspect that they wanted to push, um, you know, a, a lesbian relationship or hint at it in some way. And that literally, it really went over my head when I watched 1904. I don't, I don't know if it was because maybe I was painted by the first one that I watched, which was 2020, where I, I knew that that relationship was going to be fraught, but it, it, the lesbian tone just didn't, I did not pick up on that at all. I think it's something that you kind of pick up if you watch it a second time. There's a mm. few instances where you're right, where the, the, the new one is definitely so much more matronly, where she talks about how she's been with Rebecca since she was a young girl. So you, yeah, you, yeah. you only view that as a very mother-daughter relationship. Whereas this one, she talks about how she came on to work at the house at the same time Rebecca moved in. So that's the only relationship that they have. And she you know, uh, very, she talks about how this is where she keeps her underwear and look at this, uh, silk nightgown she has and she holds up and she's like, you can see right through it. Like that's a, that's a very sexual undertone of like, I would dress her in this very revealing outfit. That's true. Yeah. And, and so I don't know if it's one of these things where it's maybe sort of unrequited love where Mrs. Danvers was in love with her and it wasn't reciprocal, or if it's one of the things where maybe they did have an actual relationship, because we're we're led to believe, we're told very explicitly that Rebecca has many partners, whether it's uh, her cousin or different mm-hmm. men that she uh, is seeing. Uh, and then we also get the insinuation that Frank chased after her, and whether or not he was mm-hmm. successful or not, that's kind of a little ambiguous, but definitely uh, sounds like maybe Max and Frank were buddies both going after the same girl, and he feels a bit jilted that Max was the the winner between the two of them, so to speak. Whereas you, you, you can get this Maybe she's the, you know, a, a flirt where she'll flirt with anyone just to sort of get what she wants, which is something we kind of learn more about her character later on, that she's very manipulative and deceiving. Or maybe they, they genuinely did have, a, whether it was a romantic or purely sexual relationship, There, I, I do think that there was definitely something going on, at least on Mrs. Danvers' part, towards Rebecca. It, it's inter- like, now you're right. When I think back, I think when I first saw it, I just kind of thought, she had a bit of an obsession with her, not in a sexual way, really, but kind of in, um, I was going to say like in that single white female kind of way, but <laughs> that, that was kind of sexual too. But I just mean, um, was the, there was a film where there was, I, I can't remember, I think it's from the eighties, um, where the, there was a, a woman who was just like obsessed with, uh, I think it's like her boss's wife or something like that. And, and they're both pregnant at the same time. And, you know, all these things happen. But anyways, I, that's the kind of relationship I had taken from it um, where I just thought she's just obsessed with her as just a person. Like she, she looked up to Rebecca. We never see Rebecca. So I don't know what she looks like, but every time you hear her talked about is she's the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. You know, she is absolutely stunning. She was the perfect, perfect woman uh, on the surface at least. And so to me, I thought, Oh, well that Mrs. Danvers, she was just, envious of of Rebecca and but not in a negative way envious of her as like I'm gonna live through you Mm -hmm. and so she was always very like that was where I took the obsession from um but it was interesting like it was very very interesting to read that uh later on that there was this implication of um a lesbian relationship which it, it makes sense like what you said about Rebecca being very um you know using her sexuality or to her advantage 
Uh, and so that would make sense that maybe she would be using her sexuality with Mrs. Danvers to gain favor from Mrs. Danvers um, more so than you would get just as her being your lady in waiting or, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, I, I really um, kind of between the, in all the differences that we've, we've talked about the, I really like Mrs. Danvers in the 2020 version, just simply because of Kristen Scott Thomas. I thought she was, like so good and the acting like lily james army hammer i think they were they were fine you know it's kind of what i expect of them but i thought kristen scott thomas i thought she was just so great in it and she just added a lot to the film and so i maybe that's why i kind of prefer the the relationship from mrs danvers in 2020 mm-hmm. um the relationship between mrs danvers and mrs de winters um but i i really loved her performance i thought it was just so great interesting it, it was something that i feel didn't quite work i think chris scott thomas is a terrific actress but i think they tried to give too much backstory to mrs danvers and it's True, one of those yeah. things where like where you're watching horror movie and then they make a sequel of it and you're like well i don't want to know where the monster came from <laughs> how they were created True. yeah <laughs> and so i think it's just yeah. one of those things where it's just like we learned a little bit too much about her that it kind of took away her air of mystique true I, I mean i think you could say that for a lot of aspects in mm. um in the movie like it, just when i think of that opening uh act if you want to call it that when when we first see mrs de winters and maxim meet you know that that whole kind of sequence of them getting to know each other and all that stuff um in wheatley's version he really plays it out like he really just keeps going and going and going with it and we really get that okay that backstory but in my i kind of was like okay i get it like they fell in love mm-hmm. we don't need to have all those things whereas in hitchcock's version it was done much faster which is funny because I, I had just said, you know, the frenetic way of, of the way that Wheatley shoots was a, almost a bit of a distraction in this, even though it could have been a cool contrast. But it was a bit of a distraction, whereas, you know, Hitchcock speeding up that part almost was more effective to me. And uh, that's in line with, you know, what you just said about uh, Mrs. Danvers is maybe we now know a little bit too much about her, mm-hmm. which is, you know, in 1940, that that conversation of what is the relationship with Mrs. Danvers and uh, Mrs. De Winters, that's an interesting topic point, right? That's an interesting talking point. Um, and you you do lose that in, in 2020. Yeah, I think, I think maybe you're, you're talking about Hitchcock showing less in the original during the courtship phase. I think yes, what that yes. works for me is, you know, too often when I watch uh, classic films, you get a couple who are like, I don't like you. I don't like you. And then the next scene, they're like, we're in love with each other. And like, where, where did this relationship <laughs> ever develop from in this on, on the surface, if you were to just be like, Oh, it's a, it's a 10 minute courtship sequence. And then they're going to get married after that. You'd be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But I think the way he shoots and edits it is very different because uh, it all starts when when Edith is sick in bed. And she's like, oh, I'm going to go out and get a tennis lesson. And then she comes back and she's like grinning like a little schoolgirl, or she's like, ooh, I got a little secret. I'm not going to tell anyone. And then we, we kind of get that same sort of shot like three times where she's just coming back to the hotel room and Edith is like, where were you all day? And she's like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> where I think that sort of works where you understand where that you, – you know what was happening. You don't need to be yeah. shown what was happening, that they're going to the beach and they're swimming and they're going on lunch dates and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And they, they, they do show a little bit. Like they show a scene where Joan Fontaine is sketching Laurence Olivier and that's kind of where we know that like – 
that's what her hobby is, is she likes to draw and sketch and things like that. And then we get a little bit of that, but like the less is more. Agreed. Completely agree. I think uh, the, the one thing I thought was very funny and very like unnecessary in Wheatley's version was when she has all the notes um, that have been given to her by the concierge mm. uh, from Maxim and she's lining them all up. That was and, a like, really pointed. weird supercut. <laughs> and she's like, look, she goes, oh, meet me at the beach, meet me down for a car ride. And I just go, who does that? I yeah. thought, you know, and again, it's back to what we were talking about before, which was it's a contradictory of her character because she isn't like, is she supposed to be this lovesick girl or was she supposed to be this kind of very worldly? You know, not that you can't be worldly and lovesick, but I'm just saying like, it, it didn't feel like it went. And you just kind of, that's a weird, like it's, I, I understand Wheatley was trying to show her infatuation and her growing love, mm-hmm. but that was such a random scene to put in that maybe that's why I thought the runtime was longer than Hitchcock's because there were so many unnecessary scenes that I just thought you could cut that and it wouldn't have made a difference to the movie. It would almost work better if they, if they still kept that like lining up of the notes, but not did that. Like I hate montages like that where it's like (laughs) every morning her going down to the breakfast place and seeing the empty table and the concierge giving her a new card. Like if they did that like three or four times where I'm just like, why are you including all of this? If they just show, you know, the very first time she gets the note and then at the very end is like, oh wow, the whole week he's been writing her notes and things like that. That makes sense. But like doing both at the same time, you're just like, it's overkill. It's very romantic comedy. Like it's, it's a very kind of Nicholas Sparks, you know, this is, we're really showing you this kind of thing and that, and, and it's, I don't know. It's a, it's a confused movie in many ways. And that that kind of, yeah. You you go, I understand how love works. You don't need to explicitly show me how love works. That's, that's, I mean, that, that also kind of brings the question of like, who was this movie meant for then? Was it meant for, younger people was it meant for an older adult i i don't know um but yeah i i found that the that lead up you're right the way that hitchcock shot it it was just enough exactly enough of what we needed as an audience to know that they fell in love very quickly mm-hmm. yeah and and it makes the actual proposal as you know silly as it is of like are you going to come back to me? What, as your, as your secretary? No, as my yeah. wife. That makes a little bit more sense at that point. Very true. And I actually, one thing I, I did love um, in the, and they kept it in both, was some of the lines. Like some of the lines were kept the same and some of the, um, you know, the dropping of the gloves when she meets Mrs. Danvers for the first time. But I forgot to mention this in the, when we were talking about the similarities was, I really like the line that Maxim says, which was, you know, when he invites her to the table and says, um, you know, we don't, we needn't talk to each other if we don't want to like, but just sit with me. I love that line. And I'm actually so glad that they kept it in both because truly, I mean, you could have just had that and I get it. Like he's interested, but he's quite suave and smooth. Um, And, but that I, I found that the relationship between uh, Maxim and Mrs. DeWinters, for me, it was quite different. I found that there was a bit more coldness from uh, Maxim's part. Like, I didn't quite know if he really did love her, to be honest. I, I thought he was infatuated with her. I thought, you know, he was there was, he, there was a lot of lust and a lot of attraction. And I thought maybe he's just looking at it as, here's, uh, you know, a, a pretty girl and I need an heir. Because they mentioned the heir as when they're driving off, like he said, he, he, they kind of make a point to say, well, 
I have to have an heir, otherwise it goes to my sister's, the, the Manderley will go to my sister's son. And mm. that's fine, but he's not a De Winter, you know. And I found that in, in the 2020 version, the fact that the revelation that actually he really is in love with Mrs. De Winter, that actually surprised me because I didn't think, I didn't think that they were like, I didn't actually think that he had much care for her. Whereas in the 1940s version, I felt that warmth between them. Like I could actually see them, you know, when they're going over the honeymoon um, film and things like that, like you could see that they were genuinely in love and that he was also looking out for her as well. Yeah, it's one of the things where, like, you, you understand the relationship, and Manderley Bay is the constant that makes him unhappy. This is not a this is not a household that that he needs to be happy in. And I think the way it eventually, you know, burns down a little bit. Spoiler alert! At this point, um, <laughs> that's him setting free that he can finally live the life he wants, and not the one that his father and his grandfather and his great grandfather and his great great grandfather and like all the people that have their paintings up on the walls that are expecting him to live. He no longer has mm-hmm. to live that, and he can finally be happy again. And they show that like post. They do. They basically do a a, a post house burning scene in the new one where they're in Egypt or wherever it is and they're happy again, which I think was wholly unnecessary because we understand that we understand that now that this thing that was, he was shackled to is no longer needs to be there and that he can live the life he wants to live. He can finally be happy again with the woman he loves. I think they do a great job with that because it goes back to the honeymoon where they're happy there. They're happy in Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. It's the second they set foot on Mandalay Bay. That's where the issues start. Yeah, I, I I would entirely agree that the whole Cairo thing was unnecessary. Didn't need it. Um, yeah, and and it, and it kind of devolves back into being a kind of an erotic movie, like in the, that in that last little sequence the two of them have with each other, um, which I found very kind of not off putting, but just very shocking because it doesn't go with the rest of the movie. Again, maybe that's the trend of this. Like that's the pattern in this movie, there's a lot of things that just don't go together because they all seem to fit in other, like they're pieces that fit in different puzzles, but not in the same one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love what you said there about uh, Manderley being, that's the place that that's where his unhappiness comes from. That's where his coldness comes from. Not just, he's not a cold person. He's mm-hmm. not a, uh, uh, an unlovable guy. He actually loves a lot and he cares a lot. Um, but it's this, whether it's the obligation of, you know, following his his heir and his lineage, you know, if, if it's if it's that that's kind of crushing down on him or, you know, the guilt of everything that happened with Rebecca. So maybe that is what adds on to, to his unhappiness there. And, and that's what paints Manderley into the way that it is. Mm-hmm. I think the last short thing I want to talk about, wrap up soon, because I think we're going a little long here, is mm-hmm. um, I think it's very interesting where they change Max from being accused of potential manslaughter to full-on <laughs> murder, which is very interesting. Uh, we know that there is some sort of issue between Max and Rebecca, and in the original one, after they have a fight, he pushes her, and then she kind of stumbles and then trips on some rope or anchor or something and hits her head, which... Mm-hmm. You know, in theory, like, yeah, you still killed someone, but it's this, you know, this idea of of guilt and knowing that it was not uh, something done on purpose, or it was, it was a simply a short violent act that ended up in tragedy. Whereas in the new one, he shoots her, 
Uh, and that sort of confused me because I know they didn't have like CSI Victorian England back in the day, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure when they pulled the body out of the water, when they find it, that, you know, why does she have... There's a bullet. <laughs> yeah, why is there a bullet there? Why does she have like three shattered ribs in such a weird way? Like a head contusion makes sense because he was able to sort of cover it up with this idea of she hit her head on the boat as it was sinking. That's how she died. Mm-hmm. where that makes sense and you can kind of understand mrs de winter's idea of well it was an accident you didn't really mean to do that like that sort of weird uh love like no matter what it's a little weird but then in the new one her forgiving him was like oh you didn't mean to shoot her no he pulled the trigger he shot her <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's not much room for uh interpretation there he yeah. did shoot her um when I was reading up about, and the, you know, this this brings it back to the Hayes Code as well. Was that in the Hayes Code they said that if a spouse kills another, his or his or her spouse, it. yeah, and they had to have been punished. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that goes against what. And so, it's a really great point to kind of wrap it up on because I thought, imagine if what would have happened if Hitchcock didn't have that shackle on him. He didn't have that rule. What would his ending would have been would it would it have been an accident would it have been what wheatley did which was he got shot and you know we're going to ignore the the front the ob the very obvious evidence that that's there um but i i do wonder when i when i saw that and the reason for why hitchcock's ending was the way it was i do wonder would he have changed it like would he have made it maybe a bit more you know but that it, it wouldn't have gone really well with the character of maxim to make him some very malicious murderer all of a sudden um but i mean you could say rebecca was what drove him to it or whatever but i that that's a point that i i, I thought was really interesting was how much did the Hayes code i mean the Hayes code affected this movie quite a bit from from what i read about it um you know this was one hitchcock was kept writing and having to rewrite and rewrite um just to get it aligned and so i i I'm and I it's what you said this is this is part of history that's probably we will never know like we'll never know what Hitchcock would have would have rather had done had he just had an open field Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's the old story that apparently the first time he showed a cut of Psycho to the censors, the shower scene in particular, they're like, whoa, you need to edit this out. There's too much blood. There's too much nudity. I'm pretty sure we see a nipple in this. And what he did is he went back and then a week later brought the film, didn't change a thing, and was like, great, yeah, I took out all the nudity and blood that you said to take out. And That's hilarious. It's because that scene in particular plays so much on the viewer's imagination to fill in the blanks. And so I think Hitchcock is one of the few directors that was really able to work around limitations. I was like, okay, you can do this. You can't do this. How do I do, how do I accomplish what I need to accomplish? And I think he was a, he was very inventive of that. And there was a few filmmakers, especially in the noir genres where they were able to really get around that of coding things in a way, whether it's, um, sex or violence or through a queer lens, things like that, where they they were able to really accomplish what they needed to in astute viewers at the time. And then film historians later on are able to look back and be like, great, I understand what they meant by it. And, and it worked. And as much as I hate the Hayes Code, the way that it sort of set back filmmaking because the way movies were, were being made in the 20s and early 30s yeah. were so experimental and, and really mm-hmm. daring, especially with the way that that sort of sexuality was, was being looked at and then caused especially the mainly the U S to go into such a puritanical 
way of we view sexuality and nudity and things like that is something I'll, I'll never really forgive the the Hayes Code for doing. But at the same time, <laughs> there were some really great works like Rebecca, which was able to really tap into that and, and work a wa- around it to his benefit. Yeah, very true. I mean, it, it is... It's always the what if, right? What if the Hayes Code wasn't there? How far would cinema have gotten pushed as an art form back back then, you know, mm-hmm. back in 20s, 30s, 40s, keep it going? Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, maybe because that it was there, one, you get to see directors be more inventive and more creative and really, I don't want to say separate good directors from bad because I don't think it's necessarily a director's fault that they, you know, they get so stymied by a, by a code, but it really lets kind of, true talent come through and and say like look at what i can do and then you can also argue you know after now that we don't really have the haste but we kind of you know there is an unwritten code of things that people want and don't want in in film anymore uh you know we talked about the the age gap you know like that's something that they took it out because they thought well audiences aren't nobody imposed it on them but they felt it imposed on them um so i i find the haze code to be such a fascinating thing but what we got out of it is is quite interesting too like even though i'd love to see you know where could film have gone the way that filmmaking the history of it that came from after like post Hayes code is fascinating in and of itself. And, you know, who knows, maybe we wouldn't have gotten some of those other classics if it wasn't for them, you know, suppressing artistry so much during a certain time period. And then all of a sudden they're free to do whatever they want. Um, And so you kind of go wild a little bit as opposed to a a gradual progression. Yeah. Well, I think this is a a great segment to end on so rachel i want to thank you so much for coming on you were really insightful and and i think we had a terrific conversation talking about these two movies if people want to know more about you and your work what is the the best place that they can follow you um you can get me on twitter uh, underscore rachel kh uh, i'm there relatively often um and uh like you said at the beginning i have a website www.rachelkh.com uh, I just talk movies over there. Uh, and I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me on Dakota. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I just read your, your excellent Halloween piece where you talked about the five scary movies that you really <laughs> love. And I think that was a really fun one. I just did a Halloween episode last week. So it kind of went hand in hand where I really, I really liked hearing what you had to say about that. Oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want even more Rebecca in ContraZoom pod content, check the archives for episode eight, which I mentioned earlier, which is Guillermo del Toro, Rebecca, and Alfred Hitchcock. And then, of course, episode seven from Wings to Birdman, 1938 to 1947, part two, where we rank the top half of the best picture winners from that era. And spoiler alert, Rebecca was the number two movie only behind Casablanca. Uh, once again, thank you, Rachel, for coming on the show. Let us know what your thoughts on either of the Rebecca films. Uh, speaking of which, make sure you follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. I want to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. Thank you to Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show. Please visit ContraZoomPod.com for all your CZP needs and bookmark it as I'll be adding lots of cool content over time. And then if you can rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be a great help. Thank you so much for listening.
Um, oh, shoot, I had a point and I completely blanked on it. <laughs> um, it happens. Yeah. Wow. Okay. This is going to be fun to edit out. Um, 